We have two readings from John chapter 14, first verses 6 through 14. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. In the second part of our scripture, verses 15 to 20. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you will know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So, uh, our passage today that Brenda, or Phyllis just read for us, uh, comes in the middle of a series of teachings and uh, prayers that Jesus offers in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he, he reveals more about his unity with the Father and his hopes for the unity of the church. As usual, the disciples struggle to really understand exactly what he's saying uh, in the midst of these teachings, but he shares nonetheless. I heard recently uh, an, an example of someone kind of creatively imagining what it might have been like if the disciples actually had really and truly understood and grasped who Jesus was, his real identity. Uh, in this example, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, returned from the dead. Others say Elijah or one of the other prophets. Jesus answered and said, well, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Logos existing in the Father as his word, and then by an act of his will being generated in consideration of the various functions by which God is related to his creation, but only on the fact that Scripture speaks of a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit, each member of the Trinity being co-equal with every other member, and each acting inseparably with and interpenetrating every other member, with only an economic subordination within God, but causing no division which would make the substance no longer simple. And Jesus said, huh? <laughs> Unfortunately, this is what it often can sound like when we attempt to talk about the Trinity. We usually make either one of two errors. One, to 
get so kind of heady and lofty and technical in our, our terms that it almost feels like, why are we even talking about this? Do we, does anyone understand the words that we're saying, uh, like, like Peter there? Or we try to use metaphors or analogies to simplify things that tend to fall short and drift towards heresy in some way because it's just inadequate to truly explain who God is. My hope is to try to avoid both of those options this morning by doing what brethren are best at, to look at Jesus this morning. Uh, everything that uh, brethren believe has always centered on the person of Jesus Christ as the living word of God. We know who God is because God has been revealed to us fully and personally in Jesus. Truthfully, there isn't a good logical reason for us to come with, up with God as three in one. In fact, that reality defies most of our understanding. We simply just accept it as a mystery. But why do we believe it at all? Why do we believe that God is triune? Because our experience of Jesus has convinced us, captured us, compelled us to receive Jesus as Lord and God. And that means we must receive God as who he is, not for as how we are able to conceive of him easily, but as he has revealed himself to us. Uh, you know, my wife is one of the more organized people that I have ever met. She's got list upon list going on in her planner uh, of all the things. That's what makes her so good as a uh, homeschool mom is that she's so organized in everything that she does. Uh, but she's always been this way as long as I've known her. But imagine my surprise then, the first time I ever looked over her shoulder at the, her laptop screen and saw just files completely unorganized everywhere on her, her, her screen. There's no folder system or anything. It's just stacks of things upon each other on the laptop screen. I'm like, who are you? What happened to your, to your devices? In her digital world, she has no sense of organization whatsoever. She's one of those people that always uses the search feature heavily. Uh, on, on those screens. It was not and still is not something that makes a ton of logical sense to me that my so organized wife behaves so differently in this realm. But I accept that about her as a profound mystery because it's who she is. Not what makes sense to me, it's just who she is. Uh, this, like all of our analogies about God, isn't really sufficient to get at this point, but I, I share this to say we receive God as he has revealed himself to be because it's who he is, not because it necessarily makes easy sense to us. But why do we believe in the Trinity? Because in Jesus, God has revealed himself as triune. We gain all our understanding of God as revealed through the testimony of God's word, most fully revealed in Jesus. There's lots of places we could look to talk about this, but since we're talking about the Trinity this morning, I picked three scenes for us to look at uh, just to try to reveal this well. Uh, we're just going to do these as drive-bys. You can uh, read these and study these more yourself later. I encourage you to reflect on them in that way. But let's just look at these real quick. The first is Jesus' baptism. So in Jesus' baptism, we see all three members of the Trinity at, at working in some way. The Father delighting in the Son, the Son humbly obeying in baptism, the Spirit rejoicing and lighting in the, in the form of, of a dove. We see also the transfiguration. I labeled that wrong. This is baptism of Jesus. Transfiguration of Jesus. 
at Matthew 17. Here we again, we see this, the light of the Father, this glorifying of the Son as the Son is revealed and transfigured um, before the disciples, and the Spirit illuminating the whole event in the shroud of a cloud here, participating. Also, at the death of Jesus, here we see the Father grieving as uh, Jesus gives up his life and humbly uh, submits himself in this way. And then the spirit also reacting again in this way, the, the rending of the temple curtain is similar to the rending of the heavens at, at the baptism of Jesus. In all three of these events, we see all three persons of the Trinity acting distinctly and yet in harmony. All of these events involve Jesus' identity being uniquely revealed in response uh, to his humility. They all include a testimony to his relationship uh, between the Father and the Son. They all include some appearance of the Holy Spirit through some sign, whether it's a, a dove from heaven, the cloud, or the temple curtain being torn, and these earthquakes and, and natural uh, disasters, these supernatural events. All of these point to this reality and relationship within the Godhead. I've heard some people describe it, um, Father, Son, and Spirit, as like the loving parent and the beloved child and the love shared between them in that way. Additionally, Jesus says some interesting things through the course of his ministry that also demonstrate this mystery, but this reality of who he is in relationship to the Father and Spirit. For example, Jesus says things like, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me, which points to some distinction between the Son and the Father. And then also says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, which makes him sound like the same person. In relation to the Spirit, Jesus says things like, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. But then also says, but you know he, the Spirit, for he lives with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Elsewhere he says, surely I will be with you always, even to the end of the age even as he is about to ascend to the Father. And so in some profound way, he is both leaving, but with them, he is uh, at the same time. So which is it? Are they separate or are they the same? Yes, <laughs> it is the answer. That's the, that's the mystery that we have. The only reason we believe this is because it's who he is. It's a mystery. It's not easy to understand. But also, the alternatives are not something that we have ever been comfortable with, with saying either. We've had plenty of chances throughout Christian history to try to simplify this. We've had people who have tried to uh, deny um, the actual divinity of Christ, saying that he was just a really good person, that God somehow uh, uh, you know, exalted to a specific place. And uh, we as the church have said, no, he is, he is what he has claimed to be. He is Lord, he is God. We've had people who have said, well, he actually, he is fully divine, but he was never really human. He only appeared to be that way. But no, we have, no, this is who God has actually revealed himself to be in Jesus. He is both fully God and fully man. And if we affirm that, then we have to affirm some complexity in the oneness of God. The only reason we believe this is because it's who he has revealed himself to be. But understanding why God is the way that God is, I'd suggest is less important than understanding what that means about who God is. What does God's identity as Trinity tell us about God? 
first and foremost, it tells us that God is love. Among many things, God's identity as Trinity means that God is and always has been selfless, perfect, outpouring love. Now, this uh, passage that we read in John 14, it's just a small portion at the beginning of this whole longer section of Jesus uh, teaching and talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, talking about what's about to happen, praying for uh, himself and for his disciples and for those who would come after, uh, including us. And in chapter 17, as he's praying for us, he he says this interesting thing. He says, um, says, Father, I want those that you have given me this up on the screen for you. I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you have loved me before the creation of the world. You've loved me before the creation of the world. Pay attention to that last line, that last phrase there. The Father has been loving the Son since before the creation of the world. Before anything else was, God loved. That is significant. It's wholly logical to think of God primarily as creator, maker, ruler, the whole uncaused cause philosophical argument. But if that is our most basic understanding of God, then just that conception makes God dependent upon us in some way. In order to be creator, God needs creation. In order to be ruler, God needs something or someone to rule. We might even be tempted to say, well, if God is love uh, or or loving, then God needed something or someone to love. But that's what's so interesting about Jesus' statement here. He said that the Father has loved the Son since before the creation of the world. And if the Father has loved the Son for eternity, then the Father did not need us or creation in order to love. He He is love himself. God is love. If this relationship of love has always been integral to God's character, that means that creation of the world was not a selfish act. God wasn't creating just out of a need to have something or someone to love, but God was creating out of an outpouring, this abundance of love within the Godhead. It was selfless, generous love. God loves us because God loves us because God is love. God created us from an abundance of love. God redeemed us out of that same love. God is with us in love because God is love. What does that tell us about ourselves as well? If we are made in the image of God, the image of the triune God, It means at least that we are made to live with that same selfless, generous love towards God and others. Now, it's here that I'll finally get around to talking specifically about the passage that we read. Um, Jesus weaves together his reflections on the Father and the Spirit here with his hopes and his desires for us, his disciples. Jesus says a few important things for us to take note of here. We cannot come to God the Father without God the Son. In 14 verses 6 and 7, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, this is, of course, an exclusive claim of Christianity, but perhaps it's not even as exclusive as it seems on the surface if you think about it. I mean, logically, if the Father and the Son are one, it would be impossible to have one without the other. We could say that we love God, but if we don't receive God as he has revealed himself to us, are we really being truthful about that love? I could say that I love my wife, but if I don't listen to her and respond to her as she is, do I truly know her and love her? Or do I just have some idea in my head of who my wife is? That I've, um, We cannot come to the Father without truly coming to and through the Son, understanding God as he's been revealed through Jesus. Further, Jesus also says, we can't love God apart from keeping Jesus' commands. If you love me, keep my commands, he says in 14.15. The Son's love of the Father is expressed through this humble obedience. So also our love for God must be expressed in that way. Without obedience, we might have some sort of affection or even adoration, but we can't call it love. Love is being united with another. It involves yielding and submission. This gets confused for us because we use the word love in all sorts of ways in our culture, even just to say that we like something. Um, it's a, a difficult concept for us to get. Um, it can just mean affection or maybe just a stand-in feeling for this idea of fulfillment granted to us by being with another person. But biblical love is about this covenant commitment, this self-giving sacrifice and faithfulness. There's grace in love for sure even when we don't always keep to the commitments that we've made, we'll likely falter, we are forgiven. But if we were to say that we love Jesus without ever having any commitment to follow through on the expectations of that relationship, that relationship doesn't make any sense. We can't say that we love God if we don't live the sorts of lives that are conformed to his commands. If we don't want to be about the ways of Jesus, then do we truly love him? Finally, we can't be united without, with, with God without the indwelling of the Spirit. Jesus says, I'll ask the Father. He will give you another advocate to help you, to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Jesus' desire for us is that we would be one with him in the same way that he is one with the Father. He desired this so much that he gifted us the spirit of truth as our advocate and our help forever. And yet we often spurn that gift. At least I do. I won't speak for you. But in my own life, I know that I've not always appreciated the gift of the Holy Spirit as I should. I can allow myself to get busy with ministry work, doing things for God, uh, the daily chaos of life with kiddos, um, my own selfish habits and what I want to spend my time on, and consequently, because I don't make space and time to spend with the Spirit, I can feel myself slipping into moments of less patience, less kindness, less gentleness, less self-control or joy even. I look at myself and see how 
far away I am from the real picture of Christ-likeness in my life. And I don't say that as a judgment on myself, uh, just as I wouldn't say it as a judgment against anyone else, but I share it because I'm not surprised by the outcome of my choices. I'm not surprised by what this results in in me. I've said this to others before, and I'll remind myself of it here, that we should not expect to see the fruits of the Holy Spirit or the gifting of the Holy Spirit as evident in our lives if we're not spending time with the Holy Spirit, not spending time with God. I know what the remedy is, to repent and to confess. Because when we do spend time with the Spirit, when we pray, when we listen, when we meditate upon the revelation of Jesus through the Scriptures, any of these ways that we, we have our habits of spending, spending time with God, the promise is that we will receive that help in our lives. We will see our hearts softened and quickened to love, uh, love God and love others. We'll see our character be transformed into the likeness of Christ. We see our passions and our abilities empowered to accomplish God's purposes in the world. We will be in Christ just as Jesus is in the Father. It's pretty mind-blowing. It's an amazing promise that we have. So we know that God has revealed to us Jesus. The question is, how will we respond? Now, uh, perhaps you're here today or maybe even listening online or listening later. Uh, and you have not had that connection with God before. You feel your need for him. You want to experience life with God, but you don't know where to start. I would invite us to take that first step today. It starts in prayer, to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, that we are not, to acknowledge that life according to our own terms is insufficient, that we're sinful, that we are in need of a Savior. And in 1 John 1, 9, it says that when we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, we are forgiven. But it doesn't stop there because it's not just about uh, forgiving our sin, but being given a new heart and a new life, a new hope. The next step then is to commit our lives to following Jesus. And the best way to do that is to invest in a community of faith, to do this with whole faith life thing with the help of others. We're not made to do this alone. We are gifted with the Spirit through the community of faith in order to journey towards Christ's likeness. And so if that's you today, I would invite you to either, you can talk to me after the service, you can reach out to a trusted friend, someone else who can share this journey with you, and tell them about what you are committing to with your life, how you are changing, and, and, and what you are inviting God to do in you. We're not meant to do this alone. But also... That might not be you today. Most of us here today have been following Jesus for years. But perhaps there could still be a tug at your heart of something that's out of alignment. I mentioned earlier myself that I've been personally convicted. I've not been prioritizing my time with God and my personal life as I should be. Maybe you're in a similar situation. Or maybe there's something else God is impressing upon your spirit to get right with him today. The point is this, we're in this together, and this is a safe space to recommit, and the steps are exactly the same. We pray, we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and that we're not. We confess our sin, receive the forgiveness of the Lord, and we commit ourselves anew to following Jesus with the help and the aid of the Holy Spirit 
and the, the body of believers. So let's pray today, giving the whole of ourselves to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because he's worthy. Let's pray. Lord, wherever we are at this morning, whatever posture our spirit is in, I know some of us have come in today tired. Some of us have come in today uh, distracted. Some of us have come in today ready to commune with you and be with you. Wherever we are, we are here now together in your presence. We respond to you, knowing that you are good, knowing that you are holy, knowing that you are love. Lord, we want to be united to you and in you. Be one with you. You are one. There are any pieces of our heart and our spirit that are out of step with you, Lord. We pray that you would help to highlight that this morning as we, we close our service to, to bring it to the surface that we can offer it up to you freely. To confess, to repent, to turn around and to walk towards you, conviction of purpose, to receive you as you have given yourself freely to us. May we journey towards you, longing to look more and more like you every day. Pray this in your wonderful and holy name. In the name of Jesus. Amen.